Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. More talk, but no action to solve Canada's health care crisis. Are teachers in Ontario going to walk off the job this fall? Learn the latest after a leaked video of Finland's Prime Minister went viral. A home that is not haunted is up for sale. And most Canadians believe grocery stores are guilty of gouging. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. We need to start sharing best practices, better ways of doing things. What, what are you hearing in New Brunswick? What are you hearing in PEI and, and in Nova Scotia? And, and really uh, support each other. That's never happened. I've ne- never seen everyone as coordinated and focused uh, for the entire country as we are now. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. That, of course, is the voice of Ontario Premier Doug Ford yesterday in New Brunswick saying it's time for a Team Canada approach to fix Canada's health care crisis. And while a lot of, well, th- thoughts and messages and um, uh, sentiments of we need to fix this thing were exchanged yesterday... There's no real specifics on what that change might entail following the summit in Moncton. Colin DeMello is our Queen's Park Bureau Chief at Global News and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Colin, welcome back to the show. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. What were some of your takeaways from yesterday's summit? Well, the the big takeaway was that there was no takeaway. I mean, I think a lot of people at this point are looking to political leaders, not necessarily for words or uh, exploratory talks, but really for action on what they're going to do to uh, repair the issues on the ground in Ontario hospitals. So the premier decided to go to Atlantic Canada. And when he talked about the Team Canada approach, the, you know, one thing must be noted here is that he was meeting with uh, three other conservative premiers, uh, that being in, in uh, Prince Edward Island, Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. And a lot of them had a kind of a like-minded approach. In fact, when the premier was talking about the idea that the status quo, in his words, are, is no longer acceptable in Ontario hospitals, you know, all the other premiers were kind of nodding along and they seemed to be uh, on the same message track in terms of, you know, it, it's not necessarily about getting more money from the federal government. It's more about uh, doing or delivering health care in a different way. The trouble is none of them really expressed what those differences in delivery will actually look like, whether it's an over-reliance on, uh, you know, privately delivered but publicly pay- paid health care, they didn't really say. And when asked for solutions, Premier Ford said, you know what, we're going to sit down and discuss it with the healthcare sector and come up with strong solutions. Meanwhile, hospitals are in the crisis, not, you know, preparing for a crisis. Yeah, they're in crisis mode right now. One of the interesting comments uh, that I caught yesterday was from the Premier of PEI, who said that the delivery of health care in his province and across the country is going to be fundamentally different than it used to be. And that sounds to me that some private element is going to be involved. What that looks like, I don't know. Are, or, or, is there warning signs or red flags or, or some kind of sign that we're moving in that direction? Well, we definitely are, but but I think a lot of people hear the word privatization and they kind of shudder because they, you know, it has negative connotations with it. I, I I think people have to understand that in Ontario and in Canada, you know, a lot of our healthcare is already delivered privately, even though it is still publicly funded. You know, take for example when you go to your family doctor, your family doctor is not a contractor of the Ontario government. Uh, they're they they're not an employee, I should say. They're a contractor. So basically, they build the government 
government. They don't get a paycheck directly from the government. So they have to set up their own operation, a private business. So when you go to your family doctor, it's privately delivered, but it's still paid for entirely by OHIP. So that's what the government and multiple governments seem to be indicating that's where they want to go. The, the trouble, though, is you're still dealing with the same number of healthcare workers in the system. And in a, if a private delivery model is going to pay uh, a doctor or a nurse a, a top-up or a premium, then you might see some of these healthcare providers go to the private delivered uh, services rather than stay in Ontario hospitals. And you know what? We're already seeing an example of this. If you take a look at agency nursing as an example, agencies have always existed in the system as a way to kind of relieve the pressures on Ontario hospitals. But now agencies are paying nurses sometimes three to four times the amount of what a hospital nurse uh, will make. And hospitals who don't have the nursing staff unfortunately have to rely on agencies and bring in, in some cases, the exact same nurses who once worked in the hospital. So there are examples of how this can go awry, and there's an example that's playing out in real time in Ontario hospitals. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News, and we're talking about Canada's health care crisis following a uh, summit attended by four premiers, including Ontario's Doug Ford yesterday. And Ford mentioned, that, and you mentioned it earlier, that any solution has to include input from the healthcare sector, whether that's doctors or nurses or even uh, hospital executives. The question is, where do we go from here? Are we going to have another summit, another planning session, another uh, brainstorming uh, meeting that really doesn't go anywhere? Well, there, there are two uh, layers to this. One, what happens outside of Ontario, and one, what happens inside Ontario. Outside of Ontario, you know, the premiers typically get together to make the argument that the Canada health transfer, uh, transfer should be increased. Uh, currently, it stands at uh, about 22% in terms of the amount of money that uh, the federal government uh, transfers to the provinces. They want to increase it to 35%. But the trouble is, the federal government is saying, well, we want to put specific um, regulations on what you can spend or how you can spend this money so you can't just, you know, uh, spend it willy-nilly. It has to be spent on the priorities um, that, that the federal government sees fit. What happens in Ontario, though, is is also a bit of an issue in terms of whether any of this is happening publicly or privately. Currently, all of the conversations that the government is having about the public health care system is happening behind closed doors. With those involved in the hospital sector and in the healthcare sector in general, the trouble is we don't know who exactly the premier is meeting, what exactly the topic or the tone of those conversations are, what suggestions they're getting, and what suggestions they're taking. So, for example, is the government presenting the idea of more private delivery to the healthcare sector and saying we want you to figure out how to implement something like this? Or is the healthcare sector coming to the government saying, this is your solution, this is how you must go forward? We, we don't know exactly where those conversations are because a lot of them are having, uh, happening privately, um, and that, to a degree, is an issue as well. Absolutely. Colin, always appreciate your time on the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. That's Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief, Global News. You can check out more details from him at Global News at 5.30 and 6. And, of course, online at globalnews.ca and 900chml.com. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900chml. ER closures, doctor shortages, frontline burnout. The pressure on Canada's healthcare system is real and it is mounting. 
This is Code Blue, a new series on Global News that's investigating and analyzing the current health care crisis. And here to help us out with this endeavor is Teresa Wright, national online journalist with Global News. Teresa, good morning. Welcome to the show. Oh, good morning. Thanks for having me. You're the author of two online stories right now that our web viewers can read at globalnews.ca, Code Blue, a global news series delving into Canada's healthcare crisis, and mind-boggling, ERs big and small across Canada struggle amid staffing crisis. Let's dive into this. What are Global News radio listeners, global TV viewers, and those who visit 900chml.com and globalnews.ca going to learn in this Code Blue series? Well, um, over the next few weeks, um, Global News is going to be delving into um, the, the realities facing the healthcare system right now, the, the systemic problems um, that have basically led to uh, a whole host of ER closures uh, and ER departments closing temporarily or intermittently, um, and in some cases in, for longer terms uh, throughout the country. Literally no province or territory has been left unscathed by by the issues that have been plaguing the system. So we're going to be looking um, not just at sort of what is happening, but also kind of some of the problems that have led to this, um, including sort of the domino effect of, you know, things like shortages of, of uh, family doctors, um, you know, is, issues with people not being able to get long-term care beds, how that's contributed. Uh, and then we're also going to be looking at some of, of you know, the solutions that ha- have people are pitching, such as, you know, what role does virtual care have in any potential solutions? What's the role of, of public-private partnerships between, um, you know, public the public health care system and some of these private, uh, you know, agencies that are now um, starting to come on board? So really trying to, to kind of look at the whole picture um, as opposed to just kind of looking at the sort of stressor points, which is often what we do in the news where, you know, when something happens, we cover it uh, and then kind of move on. This is going to be delving a little bit more deeply into to all the problems that have kind of led to this point. And there's some real personal stories that are being shared in one of the articles, the mind-boggling story. You uh, start off by telling the story of a woman named Bernie Wood in Charlottetown who has felt the impact of this crisis. That's right. So Bernie, she uh, had COVID-19 a couple of weeks ago uh, and was, you know, was struggling to breathe. So she called 911. Um, They could hear that she couldn't breathe on on the phone. So they sent an ambulance right away, took her to the largest hospital in PEI. And when she got there, um, even though she was positive for COVID-19, they put her in the main waiting room, which was filled with people. And um, and then she was told she would have to wait upwards of 20 hours uh, to see a doctor, even though she was struggling to breathe. And now she was exposing herself at, as COVID-19 patient and to all of these other uh, patients who were in the, the waiting room. So that was obviously really shocking for her. Um, and it's really just, we hear these stories all across Canada right now of people who, have, you know, they, they can't, they either they can't get into their family doctor, or they don't have one, they can't get into a walk-in clinic because there's just, the, the real problem is a staffing shortage. There's doctors and nurses are leaving their profession, uh, they're burnt out, they're getting sick, and there's just not enough of them to kind of, you know, to meet the needs of, of Canadians, um, in, you know, healthcare needs. So, 
So she's just one of many Canadians who are really, really struggling to get medical care, even when they're in an urgent situation. And that's really quite terrifying for a lot of people. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Teresa Wright, national online journalist with Global News. We're talking about Code Blue, the new series on Global that is investigating our current health care crisis. One of the questions that this Code Blue series is going to look at is, whose job is it to fix the problems in health care? What do we plan to hear? Well, we're hoping we are going to be uh, speaking with um, all the different stakeholders involved. Um, you know, really, you know, we often hear um, when it comes to health care, the different people, they, they tend to kind of point fingers and blame one another, different levels of government, because the reality is that health care is a shared responsibility between the federal and provincial governments, and there's also municipal governments who are at play, and even regional hospital organi- hospital um, hospitals and regional health authorities. They all, everyone is, is kind of in this together. And, and really, one of the big things that we, we keep hearing from everyone is throwing money at the problem is just not going to, to solve anything. So really trying to get all those people to talk about not only, you know, acknowledging the problem, which in some cases is a little bit challenging to do, um, and then also saying, okay, what are, what's going, what are you going to do to fix it? And what is your role? Because if everyone is, is kind of too busy saying it's not my problem, it's that person's problem, Problem, it's really hard to kind of think about what's going to what's going to change. So we're we're looking at what the roles are of everybody who is involved, and then looking at the potential solutions that that could be explored. Very much looking forward to hearing, seeing, and reading more about Code Blue on online TV and radio as well. Teresa, thanks for the time, and uh, look forward to uh, your coverage. Well, thank you so much for having me. That's Teresa Wright, National Online Journalist with Global News. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Parents are tired every three years in this province in some form with every premier in the chair, liberal, new Democrat, conservative, in my entire life, 35 years on earth. The one commonality is that parents and their children have had to pay Uh, for these types of escalation attempts that only hurt kids. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. That is the voice of Ontario's education minister who says parents don't want any more disruptions to the school year. Why is he saying that? Well, a union representing Ontario education workers has set the course uh, for a strike vote, but says they wouldn't be in a position to walk off the job until October at the earliest. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton is Laura Walton, president of CUPE's Ontario School Board's Council of Unions and is also an educational assistant in this province. Laura, welcome to the show. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. Before I get your thoughts on Minister Lecce's comment, how are negotiations with the province going? Well, uh, slow. (laughs) Uh, We served notice to bargain almost 90 days ago. Uh, We've had very few dates. We have one more date on this Friday. Uh, and then nothing until school goes back, and even then, only three more dates in the month of September. All right, to the minister's comments, Stephen Lecce saying that, uh, listen, it seems like almost every year, every other year, that there are some disruptions with our education system when it comes to education workers um, demanding new contracts, wanting more money. Your response to what he's saying? So I find that uh, Minister Lecce has some revisionist history happening uh, because it wasn't actually until 2008 where there actually started to be provincial uh, discussion tables. And it wasn't until the School Board Collective Bargaining Act came into place in 2014 that their province was actually directly involved as a party in bargaining. 
So I'm not sure where he's getting, regardless of who, what premier, uh, prior to that, negotiations were done at a local level and didn't involve in the government at all. So when it comes to the setting in motion of a strike vote, what is going to be happening over the next few weeks or months? Yeah, so in the next few weeks, workers are going to be talking to each other, and they're going to be holding a strike vote at the end of September, September 23rd. Uh, And the strike vote goes for 10 days. Um, And I want to be clear, a strike vote does not mean that we're going on strike. I have been an educational assistant for 20 years. I have often taken strike votes, and never in my career have I been on strike. Um, But what I do see strike votes being is a clear, invisible sign of the worker power that is happening to make the demands that they need. And this is a group of people, you know, making $39,000 a year um, on average. The wages are so low that we're actually losing. There's recruitment, recruitment and retention issues across this province, you know, notably even in Hamilton, where folks are making 10 to 15 percent. 10 to $15 less an hour as tradespeople in our schools than if they did if they went out and worked elsewhere. Um, there's a problem that's happening, and we need to ensure that the wages are fair, and we need to ensure that the services, the services that kids and parents that Minister Leche is talking about, we need to make sure that they're there. And currently, the offer that's on the table doesn't do that. Laura Walton is the president of CUPE's Ontario School Board's Council of Unions, also an educational assistant here in Ontario, and is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. You mentioned wages. We understand that the union is looking for a pay raise of 11.7% a year, which uh, I'm sure our listeners are hearing that thinking it seems a little excessive. How was that number determined? Well, it's actually not 11.7. We are seeking a pay raise of $3.25, and it's a flat rate. And it's purposely a flat rate because percentage increases further the disparity between low-income earners and high-income earners. It's why, you know, minimum wage goes up by a flat rate, for instance. Um, So what we are doing is looking for a flat rate, and it's looking at what is needed to bring these folks up to a level that is a livable wage. Currently, Over 50% of our members are working second jobs, third jobs, fourth jobs in some cases. Uh, 25% are experiencing food insecurity. Uh, They're experiencing housing insecurity. And I think that's something that the minister is forgetting. These are not high-pay people. He talks about this, you know, generous pension. If I took my pension right now, I would make less than $500 a month. Um, It's really, he really is uh, turning the story and really neglecting and ignoring uh, and disrespecting those low-wage workers who have been on-site in our schools throughout the pandemic and will continue to be so. Laura, appreciate the time. Good luck with the negotiations. Thank you. Take care. That's Laura Walton, president of CUPE's Ontario School Board's Council of Unions and uh, represents 55,000 workers, which include maintenance staff, librarians, and early childhood educators. So they're Uh, Open voting on whether to set a strike mandate or not goes from September 23rd to October the 2nd. We'll keep tabs on that vote, no doubt about it. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Are we in prohibition times? Are we back in Victorian times that a young person in her 30s can't 
be with a small group of friends and and have some fun. That is the voice of former MP Peggy Nash. She was a guest on the Kelly Catrera Show, which you can hear weekdays on 900 CHML between noon and 3. And uh, Ms. Nash is a, a huge proponent of getting more women involved in politics. And why are we playing this clip for you? Well, it relates to what is happening in Finland. And if you haven't heard... Finland's prime minister has been in some hot water, rightfully or wrongly, depending on which side of the fence you sit on, over a video that has gone viral. In this video, which was leaked apparently by one of the people, obviously in this private setting, this was a private party, the video shows Finland's prime minister, who's a 36-year-old woman, one of the youngest uh, leaders of a country on the planet, dancing and singing and having a a great time with some friends. It has triggered a debate, however, uh, among Finns, among people like you and I, about the level of reveling that a leader should be doing. Now, how far is too far? Because there are certain tentacles and angles we can go at here. Number one, this is a private setting. So, you know, a prime minister is a human being, as she has stated in, uh, in the media, listen, I'm, I'm just a human. Yeah, I'm 36, but I'd like to have a good time, too, in my private life. And I think that's perfectly allowable. I mean, these people aren't robots. Politicians are, believe it or not, human beings. So they should be allowed to have a good time. Let their hair down, right? The other side of the equation is, and some people are asking, well, number one, you know, was she on drugs? The answer is no. She she took a test to quell any rumors that, yes, she was you know, doing something illegal, that was not the case. Test came back negative. She was not on drugs. The other part of this is that, listen, if she had a few too many drinks, would she have been able to handle an emergency, some kind of national crisis, if something came up? Let's not forget, there's a war in Ukraine still happening. Tomorrow is the six-month anniversary of this conflict. And Finland, as we know is entering NATO. I mean, they've been neutral for years. They border with Russia, but now they're, you know, dipping their toe into the NATO alliance. And so if something happened on an emergency basis that, let's just say, involved Russia or involved Ukraine or involved, obviously, Finland, would she have been capable enough to take action? That's one of the questions that's being answered. But The other question is, does a prime minister, does a president, does a leader of a nation have a right to let loose once in a while? You know, to face and and, and shed the stressors of a day. I think the answer is, yeah. Hello. Again, these people are human beings. Let them have their downtime. They should have a right to enjoy a party. I mean, it's a party. Uh, again, here is the Finnish Prime Minister's response to this this whole controversy. I present a uh, younger generation, but w- what comes to social media or Instagram, I think that I'm an individual, a person, a real person also, even though I'm a Prime Minister. So I won't change uh, the way I behave. Uh, of course, I have to be careful what I say, because it can be uh, pre- represented as the whole government. Uh, but I'm still a person, and I will be in the future also. And and that's where the line is drawn. She makes a great point, because what she does in her private life, 
should be private. Number one, this video should never have been leaked. We should never be talking about this. But number two, yeah, when she's out and about, when she's at a uh, a function, whether it's in Parliament, yeah, there there has to be a level of decorum. She can't be showing up, you know, inebriated and dancing around, right? Like we expect a lot more from our our uh, government leaders, whether it's provincial or federal, even municipal. When you are representing the city, province, country, state, whatever the case is, you need to have a certain level of, um, as I said, decorum. Now, private party, away from the spotlight, not representing what we are, who we are as a nation, totally different story. So while I think this has been blown out of proportion, I get, you know, the questions that are being asked, especially from the emergency basis. But then again... You know, there are other avenues that could have been done. If she was out of commission, let's say she's in a hospital, she's in a coma, and there's an emergency that arises, you know, there's other individuals that can make decisions. This is how government works. So, uh, for the record, I'm behind Santa Marin. You go, girl. We'll discuss this in the Good Morning Hamilton Roundtable later on in the show. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This is an a very interesting topic. We have seen the housing market in this city and around the country spike and plummet and toss and turn like a laundry bin. You know, it's up and down all over the place. The price of homes um, a year ago were off the charts. Now, you know, settling down into a more balanced market and uh, really a buyer's market. Well, there's a realtor in Toronto who has, and, and this is not unique to Toronto, it's happened in other places, but the, the latest story comes out of T.O., in which a house has been put up for sale, and in this still competitive market, you want to draw as many eyeballs as possible to this listing. If you're a real estate agent, this is, this is what you do. And so what they've done is they've added a sign to the for sale sign. So, you know, for sale, here's the, the uh, sign on the lawn. And underneath the for sale sign, it says, not haunted, which is interesting because the home is apparently not haunted. So why would they do that? And and does this kind of tactic work? Rob Golfie joins us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. As you know, Mr. Golfie is a sales representative with Remax Escarpment Realty, the Golfie team. Rob, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. How are you? I'm good. So if I'm driving along and I see a for sale sign on a lawn in a home, whether it's in Toronto or Hamilton or wherever, and I see not haunted below it, is is that going to attract more people to investigate this house? It's going to attract people to take a double look at that uh, house and uh, when they're driving by, and uh, it's just something you don't see. Uh, it's been used many times before, uh, like from in the U.S. and Canada from realtors, but uh, but definitely it does draw attention, and you know what? And it's it, it's a pretty gutsy move too. Like it's, uh, I have to give the agent credit. Uh, yeah, the whole and the homeowner has to agree to it because he doesn't want people to think it's haunted. But it is a definitely an attention grabber. Uh, people will look at look at the house, drive by, and uh, you know what? If it gets a sale for him, good for him. Yeah, apparently this realtor has had the sign for about a year now and thought, hey, let's try something new because, as you know, the market is very different now than it was even just a few months ago. Oh, absolutely. And uh, realtors are coming up with different ideas. Um, You know, like people will use, um, like, you know, flat screen TV included if you make an offer. 
Um, they'll put, you know, they'll, they'll do anything, like, you know, cats included, uh, you know, because it, it may, may uh, in, entice somebody that's a cat lover or pet, mm-hmm. you know, or get a dog or something like that. Uh, comes with dog. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, right now, I mean, the market is quiet. Uh, the market is changing. And to draw attention to the house is what everybody needs. Like, realtors are doing everything to, to draw attention to the house to get more eyes on it. And because it, it is, it is tough right now um and the market will change uh i i think in the fall uh to be more balanced but but yeah definitely anything to uh, attract attention to the house to get more eyes on it uh agents are doing everything they can have you ever sold a haunted house i think i have my office is in a haunted house (laughs) (laughs) so i mean we hear uh uh sometimes funny things in uh in my office here and and if you're here late at night some agents will say I think I heard something upstairs. So people don't hang out on the, in the uh, third floor of the of the building uh, late at night on their own. They just kind of stick around the main floor. But uh, but but there's been uh, uh, things uh, heard in this uh, office of mine uh, in uh, on Markland. Have you ever thought about checking it out with uh, I don't know a ghost hunter or one of those people who go to homes and 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 check these things out? You know what? It hasn't been uh, uh, so bad to a point where we have to do that, but maybe I should get some, uh, uh, somebody that, you know, can check to see if there are spirits uh, roaming around the office here. But, uh, but yeah, that is, sounds like a good idea to do. It might be something that you don't want to find out too, right? Oh, you're right. Too. <laughs> like, you know, cause if you do know something, then, then I have to disclose when I sell this place down the road. So it's <laughs> better right. to know, not know it. <laughs> That's right. Rob, appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us. And we'll talk to you on Saturday on the Golfery Real Estate Show. You got it. Thank you. Have, thank you for having me. Thanks, Rick. You got it. Rob Golfie, sales representative, Remax Escarpment Realty, the Golfie team. And, uh, yeah, you can check out the Golfie Real Estate Show Saturdays at 9 right here on 900 CHML and in podcast form as well. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Money. We want more of it. We don't have enough of it. Where do we get some? How far does it go? Not very far is the answer to that last question. Not these days, not with inflation at a 40-year high, not with food prices sky high. The sticker shock at grocery stores, as you know, is absolutely real. So much so that there's a new poll out from Angus Reid that shows that 78% of Canadians believe that grocery stores are taking advantage of inflation to make increased profits. The question is, are they? Is that happening? Is, Is there price gouging? At grocery stores. Janet Music is a research program coordinator at the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University and joins us once again on Good Morning Hamilton. Janet, how are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for joining us once again. The uh, The question, are grocers guilty of gouging customers? Well, you know, it's difficult to say. Um, you know, they release their data publicly and, you know, we've looked into it and, and the answer is unclear. Uh, but, you know, 80% of Canadians believe that they are inflating their prices artificially and that's a problem. So regardless of whether or not it's true, uh, people think it is. And so, you know, perception is reality. Very much so. How are prices set? Well, you know, prices are set, you know, in the boardroom, right? And it's a negotiation between suppliers and retailers. And, and those those talks are, you know, 
are private, they're confidential, and, and the cards are kind of kept real close to the chest there. So, you know, most of us would never ever be part of that or or really, you know, see that. And and we only have, you know, a limited supply of retailers in this country. And with, you know, five major suppliers or retailers, sorry, they have a lot of power in the marketplace. And so, if, you know, you're a small producer and you want to sell your, you know, your goods at Loblaws. Well, you know, you're kind of negotiating with a giant. And so, you know, when they have access to the public and you don't, you're kind of at their mercy. And so, you know, Loblaws always says they want to keep their prices low for their customers. And, you know, whether that's true or not is debatable, as most people know. Uh, but it, it is a negotiation and, and it's an uneven negotiation, I would say, because one party has a lot more power than the other. And we kind of saw that scenario play out with the Lay's potato chip uh, incident from earlier this year. That's right. And so if you think of Lay's part of PepsiCo, uh, you know, kind of a global food producer, you would think, well, okay, you know, Lay's, you know, this is an even relationship. But in fact, in that scenario, it's not quite an even relationship because Loblaws is a gatekeeper to Canadian grocery shoppers, you know. So, you know, Loblaws was kind of at the kind of at the table kind of dictating what's going to happen here and and you know whatever happened at the boardroom well would have been interesting to be a fly on the wall for that i'm sure <laughs> but you know in the end you know whether pepsico capitulated or not it's difficult to say but they did come to an agreement and and you can now get tasty potato chips again at Loblaws. Yes, hallelujah. Because those other ones, they just weren't, I mean, you just looked at the bag and thought, no, I don't want those. I want my Lay's. Well, you know, it's interesting because Loblaws actually produces their own potato chips. And, you know, I wouldn't call myself a potato chip connoisseur, but we can't have them in the house because I will mow through them all in one <laughs> sitting. And, you know, they are pretty tasty, you know, but I haven't met a potato chip I haven't, you know, enjoyed, so... Yeah. I think you're speaking for the majority of the population, that's for sure. Janet Music is our guest, Research Program Coordinator at the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. We're talking about rising food prices. Are they set to continue to rise? Are we going to see an easing of prices at the grocery store? What does the crystal ball tell you? Well, we're already seeing inflation kind of uh, slow down. And so it's it's down, you know, this month since last month, which is a good news story. But, you know... There was a report that came out that 56% of Canadians feel like they can't keep up with the the rate of inflation, and that that I think is more alarming than than grocery prices because that's people not you know saving money for retirement. That's you know foregoing uh, you know they say foregoing vacation and new car purchases, and you think well okay that's you know people can forego that but if people are feeling like they can't uh, run their households on their current wages which absolutely aren't keeping pace with inflation then you know i think what we're seeing is something that's uh, going to be detrimental to health in the long run you know and you know are we getting into a recession i don't know but people on the margins are going to feel this acutely and of course grocery stores are the front line of prices right and so you know, can't not eat. And and it's it's a very precarious time for a lot of Canadians. In saying that, the light at the end of the tunnel seems to be getting brighter because, as you mentioned, inflation seems to be slowing down. The supply chain issues now, I, I would guess, 
uh, don't seem to be as severe as they once were, and gas prices are also going down, which helps in transportation and distribution. So would you agree that that light is getting a little bit brighter? Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, as... You know, COVID is still kind of an, uh, an X factor out there. You know, we're in the warmer months. So presumably, you know, just like the cold and flu, COVID kind of slows down when it's warmer. And, you know, so we don't really know what the fall is going to, what the fall is going to bring. And I think, you know, climate change is, is a serious factor now in, in food supply chain, right? And so we're seeing record heat in a lot of places. And, and last year, you know, in BC, they had those, you know, flooding that really cut them off from the supply chain completely. And we get a lot of food from BC. And so these things are kind of outstanding. What is the fall going to bring? It's, it's difficult to say when it comes to weather. And I think, Yes, supply chains are kind of moving really well right now, um, and hopefully it remains that way. But weather will absolutely become an issue as we get into the colder months. Janet, always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us today, and enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for having me. That is Janet Music from Dalhousie University's Agri-Food Analytics Lab. You can also vote in our Twitter poll question of the day, which is based on The cost of things like food, transportation, mortgage, rent. Do you plan to borrow money to cover these increasing costs? Yes, no, or I already have. And right now, survey says the majority are in the no category, 76%. Say no, you know what, right now we're doing okay. 14% say yes, 10% say they have already borrowed some money to in uh, to cover those increasing costs thanks for listening to the good morning hamilton podcast you can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 5 30 to 9 on 900 chml and online at 900 chml.com the good morning hamilton podcast is available on apple podcast google podcast and wherever you get your favorite podcast i'm rick samprin thanks again for listening and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast it's free so you never miss an episode and make sure you rate and review